Looks like we're at time, so we can get started. I'm sorry to break up the robust conversation occurring. Welcome to you gentlemen joining us online as well. Uh, tonight marks the beginning of our study of First Corinthians, so you can turn there. If you have a Lutheran study Bible, page 1944 is where you'll find the introductory material, which is where we'll, we'll start. If you don't have a Lutheran study Bible, you should probably get one. It's really, really just a fantastic resource. And I've had opportunity to look at study Bibles from other denominations and the Lutheran one, which, you know, from time to time I peck on. Anything done by a committee is ultimately peckable at one point or another. But this is this exceeds and excels them all. It's a wonderful resource. So you ought to really consider picking one up. You know, I think to myself sometimes how much we spend on our hobbies or our passions, as we sometimes say, and the things we really enjoy, and we'll we'll drop money like it's nothing. And then when it comes to like a Bible or Bible study tools, we're like, I don't know. $50 for a study Bible. So, yeah, I I encourage you along those lines to to make this the central desire and to uh, not be afraid to spend a little bit in that pursuit. Okay, let's open with a prayer, and then I'll get into the introductory materials. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise to you uh, for this word that you have given us in St. Paul's first letter to Corinth and the Christians therein. We pray your blessing upon us as we study it, that we might rightly understand it in its original context, and then apply those very same principles, the wisdom inspired by your Holy Spirit, unto our circumstances, unto our congregation, unto our lives together as your saints. Indeed, we are reminded even in the opening verses that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we pray with full assurance of your grace and mercy in Christ Jesus, calling upon his name and standing before you, in that very same name, bestowed upon us in the waters of holy baptism. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So all the preliminary materials in regard to 1 Corinthians are an absolute joy to study and a terror to teach, because there's so many details and there's so many threads to follow and so many names. So you'll probably hear me especially this period saying these words frequently, I don't know. (laughs) You'll just have to bear with that. If you look at the study Bible, assuming you have it, and if not, this won't be unbearable for you. On page 1944, up at the very top is just a really helpful timeline. It starts with the conversion of St. Paul in AD 36. And the next point on the timeline is Paul planting the congregation at Corinth. This takes place during his second missionary journey. The dates given the years 49 through 51 AD. The next point on that timeline is Paul's third missionary journey, AD 52 through 55. And the next point, then Paul writes 1 Corinthians, AD 55. So this isn't the earliest of Paul's epistles, those probably being dated to 52, 53, usually thought to be Galatians or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but this is still early. The latest of Paul's writings taking place in the middle of the 60s. Okay, so that kind of gives us a general sense for when this is being written, when the congregation at Corinth uh, was established, and we'll get into the details of that momentarily. Um, for those of you online, I'll, I'll simply just hold this up as best I can. Maybe it'll translate, maybe not. But this is um, then the map that you all have in your hands. And what you'll see, of course, in this map, the New Testament world in the time of the Roman Empire is, of course, down in the bottom right-hand corner in the map, kind of highlighted in purple. Of course, you'll see Jerusalem in Israel part of the Roman Empire. And as you go up north, you're going to see a lot of names that uh, are familiar to you from references in the scriptures. Sidon and Tyre came up just in this last week's gospel, for example. And of course, as you go up, you'll see 
Antioch, the base of so many of the church's earliest activities. As you wrap around to the west and wrap around the Mediterranean Sea, you'll see Tarsus, of course, Saul of Tarsus, uh, Paul. And then, of course, Pamphylia, Pisidia, Phrygia, Galatia, all those regions, Cappadocia, all regions mentioned in the scriptures. And as you just carry along the coast, um, you'll find, uh, let's see, Miletus and then Ephesus, of course, Sardis, names familiar to you um, as you're out there on the peninsula. And then as you kind of start going north again, you'll start to see Troas and curving around what's called the Aegean Sea. Of course, uh, Neapolis, Philippi, Paul's letter to the Philippians, Thessalonica, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, down to Athens, and then you'll see Corinth there on the Isthmus, of course, Sparta there to the south, and that'll give you some flavor, just because you've probably watched the movie 300, It'll give you some uh, flavor for Corinth. So there on the Isthmus, a fascinating place. Um, they would, and I don't know exactly the the bounds here, but they would pull ships across the isthmus like on rails rather than have them sail all the way around and bear that danger. So that's all I want to point out really on the map. I mean, there's other places of interest. Obviously, you see Rome in the left-hand corner, um, but that'll give you a general geographical context for where Corinth is where Paul traveled to. Now, just a few words in passing about Corinth, and I'm pulling most of this from a fantastic commentary. This is part of the uh, Concordia commentary series, Gregory Lockwood. Um, so I'm pulling most of this data from him. So Corinth is uh, one of those places that's very religious, as St. Paul would say. It's just filled with idol worship. Um, you have Apollo, Aphrodite. Aphrodite will fa will factor large. Corinth um, is a town or a city rather that really struggles struggles with sexual immorality. It's a port city. It's a major port city. Maybe that's enough said. But then, as you add that, um, add to that, Aphrodite is one of the main goddesses, the god of goddess of love. It's probably an overblown number, but one of the ancient writers says there's a she has a thousand. Um, temple prostitutes in Corinth alone. That's a, that would be a huge number, a huge percentage. We're talking about a population that fluctuates, obviously, over time, but maybe somewhere around 100,000. So if you have 1% being prostitutes dedicated to one specific goddess, that would be outrageous. But anyway, we see that crop up in, the, uh, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that issue. Okay, so there's... Um, pagan worship all over the place. We're also going to see Stoicism and Epicureanism. Epicureanism is alive and well in our culture. Epicureanism is sort of like, if it feels good, do it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Um, we live for the pleasures and live for the passions. So Epicureanism is around. And then so also is its counterpart, Stoicism which Stoicism is actually seeing a bit of an underground resurgence, at least among the males here in the West, as pagans look for an alternative to Epicureanism. Surely there's more to live for than the next iPhone. Surely there's more to live for than uh, just sexual liaison one after another. And so Stoicism comes in and, um, you know, again, this kind of a major, I, I mean, a diverse movement, diverse philosophy, but in general, it's this whole idea of the strength of the individual self over and against the chaos of the world. And so controlling what you can control and being unfazed, being manly in the and virtuous in the face of all kinds of pressures to the opposite. So that's maybe my best stab at generalizing stoicism. You also have a kind of a sophistic movement happening within Corinth where there's all this emphasis on rhetoric and being able to persuade. Now, sometimes this is done uh, philosophically for the purposes of driving home one's philosophy or philosophical school, um, sometimes religious, and there'd be debates. But there's this whole sort of sport going on of rhetoric 
And so we're going to see Paul refer to that, that, look, I'm not coming to you in fancy rhetoric and eloquent speech. I'm coming to you with the plain word of the cross that you might know that the power is in the cross of Christ itself, not in the eloquence of my speech. So that's another kind of flavor of what's going on there in Corinth. Um, a lot of the the ethos of Corinth is one of self-empowerment. And you're going to see that too. So in the pagan religion, self-empowerment and becoming enlightened and um, being able to do whatever you want to do. And so the Corinthians struggle probably as do we as um with this idea. And so you're going to see Paul address this in his first letter to Corinthians, that they're mistaking the gifts of the Holy Spirit as opportunities to become self-empowered and better than their fellow Christians. Paul's going to really try to cut this off at the knees and say, look, there's a diversity of gifts because we're all members of one body. And these gifts aren't given that you feel so that you feel superior to your neighbor these gifts are given so that you can serve your neighbor in love. So all these gifts that you receive from the Holy Spirit are really for the <laughs> loving your neighbor and loving the body of Christ. And if not used for that purpose, they're being abused. So that's another theme of the book of Corinth. And you can see how that uh, will connect with the culture of the church there in Corinth. Now, it may sound strange, but before we begin our study of 1 Corinthians, let's actually turn to a different biblical book. Let's turn to Acts chapter 18. And here we'll read about the founding of the congregation in Corinth. And we'll get a flavor for a couple of the key players here. Okay, so Acts 18, and we'll just pick up at the first verse. Obviously, if you just look at the headings that precede chapter 18, you'll see things like Paul in Athens. Well, you know where that is. That's northeast of Corinth. See Paul addressing, addressing the Areopagus. And then chapter 18, verse 1, Paul in Corinth. So just reading there. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, Corinth and he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So that's kind of a wild thing, that your governor can simply say, hey, get out of the city, and you have to. The study note in the Lutheran Study Bible says, the Roman historian Suetonius, I don't know him, I like his name, though. Suetonius relates how the emperor Claudius expelled Jews from the city in AD 49 because of their squabbling over a quote-unquote Crestus, which is probably a reference to Christ. So at any rate, there's a little bit of a migration down to Corinth, and thus uh, Achilla and Priscilla are there. And Paul goes to see them. So just picking up at the very end of verse 2, chapter 18 of Acts. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers. And there's all kinds of wild speculations about what kind of tents they were making. And maybe they were making awnings. Uh, 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 what are they called? Awnings for the, uh, you know different uh, buildings or uh, sporting events or whatever else. Who knows? At any rate, picking back up at verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So there is a synagogue in Corinth at this time. That's where Paul makes his headquarters for preaching the gospel. He's doing this to Jews and to Greeks. He's probably not needing to go out into the community to find the Greeks to preach to, because many Greeks are part of the synagogue. And we're going to shortly run into one prominent person who is like that. Uh, 
God-fearers, as they were sometimes called, would recognize um, all kinds of uh, varieties, you might imagine, of God-fearers. Some that are just attracted to the monotheism, they're done with the pantheism, they're attracted to the monotheism and the simplicity, they're also attracted to the morality. Um, maybe on the other end of the spectrum would be they recognize that the God of the Jewish people, that Yahweh is the true God. Um, why are they not fully brought in? Well, because they have not yet decided to be circumcised, which is the entree point. And you can see how that's kind of an attractive thing, right? You could be a God-fearer and believe in God and probably be saved and enjoy you know, what you can enjoy out of the synagogue, but you don't have to go through that. So um, that's that's where you get the God-fearers or the Greeks, um, who Paul is likely persuading here in verse 4. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, so a few weeks later, uh, after Paul's arrival, Silas and Timothy come. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, obviously, in the Hebrew scriptures, you have the promise of the Christ thoroughgoing, and Paul's message to them is an argument based on the Old Testament scriptures, always and ever. And we're going to see that recur. Jesus fits what is written of the Christ. That's effectively his argument. That's effectively what he's preaching, Sabbath in and Sabbath out. Okay, at verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Which doesn't maybe sound quite as dramatic. I mean, in one sense it is, and in one sense it isn't. Because you're going to see in the very next verse that going to the Gentiles is literally going next door. <laughs> okay. But it is dramatic in this sense that by and large, as a people, as a synagogue, he rejects them and says, okay, you've rejected Christ. I've rejected you. The emphasis of my ministry has shifted away now from the synagogue proper to the God-fearers and other Gentiles there. So in one sense, you can see what he's saying. In another sense, kind of humorous because he just goes next door. So this is sort of like wiping the dust or, as Jesus would say, from off your feet when they receive you not. So here's a, a New Testament example of that very principle. Verse 7, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Eustace, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. All right, well, you can tell from his name. It's a Gentile name. Now, what many scholars do, and I think, I think, this, is, I think this is wise, I think it's probably right, is they point to Romans 6.23. So if you've got a free hand, if you just stay there at Acts and glance over at Romans 16.23, obviously the this is the section at the end of Romans where Paul is, is put in his own personal greetings. And at verse 13, he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been mother to me as well. Did I get the? No, I'm on, I'm on 13, not 20. We can just skip this. I'm sorry. Uh, 23 is what I wanted, not 13. It's just unnecessary to read all that. Gaius who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. All right, when you connect all the dots, which I'll just bore you to tears. I mean, I was kind of even bored to tears. But when you connect all the dots about where Paul is and what he's writing, and the fact that this guy is host to Paul and to the whole church, Gaius seems to be Titius Eustace. So Gaius would be his first name or his common name, and Titius Eustace would be his title. So that's the position of Lockwood in the commentary, and it's a fairly common position. So, I mean, for what that's worth, take it or leave it, Gaius Titius Eustace is here. And as we're going to – well, maybe maybe here's as good a point as any to pl put it in. So 
as scholars speculate about how big this house is and this title and everything else that he could, um, you know, as you're going to see, he's right next door to the synagogue and, and his place becomes the hub, becomes the church central of Corinth. So you have speculations ranging from 28 people, which to me sounds like not likely at all, up to 100 plus people, which is stretching it for a, a large house at that time. I mean, even kind of an estate at that time. But that gives you a rough sort of sense for how big the church in Corinth is. They may have been going off into other homes and, and having like other little sort of cells, if you will. But when the church all gathers together as one for like what we would call divine service, they're all at Titius Eustace's house. And that seems to be the same as Gaius and what Paul's describing in 1623 of Romans. Everybody hanging in there? I know for some, some people are all wild about this stuff, and this is just great. I couldn't, it couldn't be more fascinating. And other people are like, okay, I thought this was on First Corinthians. I'm more like that. So, <laughs> but anyway, I thought that this would be helpful. Let's go a little further because we're going to meet some other personalities here. Verse eight. So back in Acts 18 and done with Romans, you can let go of that. Acts 18, eight. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So even though Paul is rejected by the majority of the synagogue, Crispus, the ruler himself, and along with him, his family, is convinced and converted. It's rather astounding. It's wonderful. So Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Okay, so you see the connection between faith and baptism and baptism as the initiatory act of coming into the church. You also see the whole household principle, the household unit, which, of course, in this time and really even up into modern times um, would include extended families and also slaves of the household. Um, as it goes for the master, so it goes for the whole household. Everybody becomes, if he becomes Christian, everybody becomes Christian. If he gets baptized, everybody gets baptized. There's just not really this interest of, well, do you personally, you know, slave number uh, eight, do you personally believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? It's just not asked. We're all, we're all becoming Christian. Our master's becoming Christian. Um, we're all being baptized. Our master's becoming baptized. This is how we'll be expected to live now and conduct ourselves. Those are just the cultural assumptions of, uh, of a non-modern West. Okay, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. This is great because you get more red letters. If you thought that Jesus only spoke in the Gospels, you'd be wrong. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And I just think that's such a glorious line, isn't it? He knows his own and his own know him and they're scattered all about. That's just such a beautiful line. And it's so comforting because it really shows that evangelism isn't this, you know, breathless, desperate thing. The Lord already knows, and it's well in hand, and he's brought us into his joy in sharing the gospel. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. So helpful, too, because sometimes we get the impression, like Paul's flitting here and there and the other place, and he just preaches the gospel, and it just instantly succeeds and grows, and it's huge numbers, and it's just not always the case. I mean, Corinth was maybe the church in Corinth was maybe a hundred saints ish. Okay. And he was there for 18 months and not just him, but Silas and Timothy and Priscilla and Achilla, as you know, preaching and evangelizing and this whole effort. Okay. And then 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, which is a delightful detail, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of 
questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now, who the they here is, is a little bit complicated. We'll look at the study note here in a minute. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So look, time has passed and Crispus has been um, obviously converted and probably cast out as the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue, by the way, was a, was a lay position, kind of like a congregational president, but more important, kind of uh, had the synagogue as his sort of like, hey, this is, you're the potter familius of the synagogue. You're the, you're the one who makes sure everything's running, right? So now we see a different man in that position, Sosthenes, which of course many, that's going to prick many of your ears because you recognize that name. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Now, if you go down to the study note, again, in the Lutheran study Bible, they, which is either the Greeks showing their anti-Semitism, I don't know if it's anti-Semitism, but it was either the Greeks doing it or Jews venting their frustration, or perhaps both. Now, it's possible that Sosthenes is the... Sosthenes, who shows up elsewhere in the New Testament. Let me see if I can find the rest reference here. Yeah, here it is. So Lockwood writes, the congregation must have contained a significant Christian Jewish minority. And we see that because Crispus and his household converted. So there's a, a significant Jewish Christian minority, but the vast majority of them are thought to have been Greek converts to Christianity. Okay. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his whole household joined the church. And if the synagogue leader Sosthenes mentioned in Acts 18.17 is the same Sosthenes who helped Paul write his epistle... 1 Corinthians 1, one. that's where we're going to see that, then at least two prominent Jewish families were founding members. The presence of a Jewish synagogue in the city is attested not only by Acts 18.4-17, but also by the discovery of a lintel bearing the inscription, Synagogue of the Hebrews. All right. Pastor, yes, sir. I just find it interesting just regarding Roman law with Gallio, mm-hmm. and I just felt it connect with Pontius Pilate. Kind mm-hmm. of the same thing, like, hey, yeah, it's exactly. like a Jewish matter. It doesn't matter to me. Like, figure it out. So they do the same consistency. Yeah, guess. and they do the same thing today. I mean, um, the, those of you who are more legally inclined than I are, <laughs> that's your <laughs> that's your vocation and calling in life. Um, can can correct, but that's often the case that judges and courts will refuse to rule if it starts to get into like matters of doctrine or practice. Like that's it's outside of our purview. So um yeah, I it seems to be the general position. It's gonna, just a connection. Yeah. Okay, so just to wrap this up, then uh Sosthenes gets beaten in front of the tribunal. And of course, uh, then Galileo paid no at- or Galileo, sorry, <laughs> paid no attention to any of this. All right, and that's the that's the applicable section there. As you'll see in eighteen, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. But the church in Corinth is established. All right, so back then to First uh, Corinthians, and back then to that um, opening timeline. And we'll return to the place where we started, but know it. You'll see then that the congregation is planted 49 to 51. So that's the section of Acts that we just read. And over the course of the next, say, six to four years, the congregation carries along. But the people of Chloe, or the those of Chloe, to be maybe more accurate, bring word to Paul that all is not well in Corinth and that there are divisions occurring and there are major aberrations in doctrine and practice occurring. And that's what occasions Paul to write 1 Corinthians. 
Now, as we'll see, I think it's in chapter five of first Corinthians, the text of first Corinthians itself shows us that first Corinthians isn't in fact, first Corinthians. Paul says, when I wrote to you formerly, we don't have that letter. We don't have that writing. Properly speaking, that would be 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians would be 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians would be 3 Corinthians. All right. Bible trivia for you. Again, wow your friends at the next cocktail party. Okay, let me glance at my notes. Are there any questions or any comments or any other details that you, you've seen that I omitted that you, know, you find very important uh, to add to the conversation? I'm happy to hear those. Please speak up if you do. I think that I've covered all that I intended to cover. No doubt when I'm home later this evening, decompressing, I'll realize I missed some major component, but I don't know it right now. Um, if you do have a study Bible, I commend to you. I'm not going to read through it all the way, but I commend to you um, the section that begins on page 1944, Luther on 1 Corinthians, because he just provides a wonderful outline and a very solid presentation of the the general themes here in the epistle so if you needed just sort of a refresher or wanted to see an overarching uh treatment probably no better than luther there in the preface all right i did it that's the isagogics that's the stuff surrounding the text um anything else we want to talk about in that in that vein any Again, anybody want to add anything? Now we'll jump right into the text. The synagogue ended up 10 Jews together. So there had to be 10 Jews in there, right, in order to form the synagogue, right? Because this is the time that they started the synagogue after, you know, they're in captivity in Babylon. Yeah, yeah. So I understand. So there's a couple things I kind of like when you're reading Acts. One is, I like how when people don't like it, you can just start beating up on them. You know, some of you don't like that, but I like that. Seems like we're getting back to that. Yeah, you know, yes. the mobs in the street just yes. beating people they don't like. So we might we might come back to that Chris, yes. in your lifetime. I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. And and then of course the other thing is kind of you know they change the. Why are they having such a hard time if they have a lot of Gentiles coming into the church? Why are they so upset? Isn't the problem I'm thinking is wait a minute, you don't want in in, in Jerusalem they're saying, Hey, we don't want you Jews. Mm-hmm. I mean the Gentiles become Jews because when Paul is in there, he says, Oh, you brought these Gentiles in. Mm-hmm. Well, well, this doesn't make sense then, because look, you're supposed to be encouraging them, because that's what you were told to do in Exodus, bring them along and stuff like that. So why do you got, I, I find myself wanting to beat people that can't read and understand when the thing, when it says, look, they're encouraging them to come here, right, in this part of Acts, then why, when he now, years later in Jerusalem, you brought some Jews in? I mean, not Jews, but Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there there is some hatred on, that's just sort of baked in to the first century Jewish culture, looking down your nose at the Gentile pagans, the Gentile dogs. Um, I think if I can, if I can just sort of wax sermonic for a moment, I think that this is a transition we're having here in in the church. Most of us, probably in this room, um, are students of the Reformation tradition. And the magisterial reformers, whether Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or whoever it may be, are writing from a context where uh, the world is basically churched. Basically, everyone in town is baptized. Everyone in the empire is baptized. Everyone's assumed to be Christian. And what that what that does for us as students of the Reformation is cause us to be a little anachronistic. So a little bit of a parallel judgment, if you'll allow me to be sermonic here, is in the same way that you kind of have the Jews 
And then you've got these, these Gentiles coming in, and, and the Gentiles are pagans, are wildly pagan, and they're doing pagan stuff. And when they convert and are baptized, sometimes the pagan stuff doesn't stop. And if you're a Jew, it's like, well, these people may not be real Christians. And indeed, they may not be. But there's a sort of zero tolerance for that. And that's what you see often cropping up, if I were to explain it, you know, if I were to explain it charitably. The parallel then is as the world around us continues to just completely paganize, we're going to see this more and more in our congregations. And it's incumbent upon us to not play the role of those Jews who say, well, this person was baptized. Why are they still paganing? Now, we're going to see that Paul shows us how we need to deal with that. In some cases, church discipline needs to come upon. There needs to be lines drawn in the sand. And so we're going to get a great study and treatment of that. But another thing that you can have your eyes open to is just the sheer raw messiness of early church life and the sheer raw messiness of doing Christianity in the midst of a thoroughly paganized culture. Because pagans, even once they convert, as they still battle with their flesh, don't stop paganing. And it, again, it kind of might be shocking to us, but we, we need to get over that. It, already, I've seen a shift even in my relatively short ministry of 15 years. I've seen a shift with people darkening the doors and coming in are people who like, hey, so do you know the, are you familiar with the parable of the prodigal son? No, what's that? Are, are you familiar with the Lord's Prayer? Never heard it. How many, uh, statistically speaking, not that I necessarily directly ask someone this unless there was a reason but statistically speaking how many sexual partners have you had it's in the dozens men and women so there's a cultural shift obviously that's taking place and we just need to be sensitized to the fact that while we do need to hold the line and while we do need to engage in church discipline where that's fitting you need to ju also just recognize that sort of this thing of like god invites sinners is absolutely true and sometimes they're of the crassest sort so that's another thing we're going to have to kind of reckon with and parallel to those you know even at the council this recorded in acts 15 the council of 49 at the end it's like fine the gentiles great everything's great bring them in but please tell them to stop being sexually immoral and eating strangled animals just causing too much offense amongst the the Jewish Christians, right? So we're, we're likely to come back to those times, please. It's sort of like Athanasius, when you got the ruling of two natures of Christ down, he was the one that was exiled. He was the one that did not eat. So he won, won the theological battle that people wouldn't give up on heresy. Yeah. And so just because there's agreement doesn't stop people from eating milk, I guess. Yeah, right. Well, and that's kind of one of this one of the secrets too is we always look back to these golden ages where these great confessors were around. By and large, they weren't seen as such. By and large, they were in the minority. They end up exiled, beaten, treated treated shamefully, and only win the day a century or more later when that becomes orthodoxy and everybody goes, "Hey, that was a really good guy." But at the time, it's like, "No, that guy's uh, got kicked out of the ministry." A guy got exiled to Nebraska, or Patmos, or whatever the case may be. So yeah, there's a little bit of romanticism where we look back and think that was the golden age of orthodoxy. Until you study what these guys actually endured, and you know, again, at the at the height of sort of Christian orthodoxy um, or Christological orthodoxy, what had preceded that immediately preceded that was the Arianism was that's more modern day Mormonism, the idea that you know, Christ isn't true God. That was the dominant form of quote unquote Christianity. And as Christianity expanded up into Europe, it was by and large Arianism before it was Orthodox Christianity. So again, all, all this to just say, we can't be romantic about the past. It, ugly, messy, and the good guys often aren't shown to be the good guys until a century later. Oh, 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 thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Gordon, please. Um, well, the Jews in Corinth had a, had a more pertinent problem. The Christians were next door. You know, it's like having a uh, Burger King and having McDonald's open up next door. It's not, <laughs> not right. good. Right. Yeah, there's 
Yeah, there's going to be some there's going to be some fighting there, some violence there maybe. Yeah, good point. Good point. Some tensions. Please. Yeah. Uh, this is his second missionary journey. Mm -hmm. um, does that, I mean, I, earlier than every time we came into, always we go to the synagogue. Mm -hmm. So from now on, we can assume that he doesn't go to the synagogues, he goes directly to where Gentiles are. Justin Corinth. Okay. Yeah, Justin Corn. Okay. That's one of the things I'm gonna I'm gonna try to point out from time to time is that in the epistle, I mean, before it becomes sort of an axiom of Christianity, it actually has to do with the concrete details. So, like when he says, "Not many among you are wise, not many of you of power, of noble birth, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. In the first, it, I mean, in the primary sense, he's talking about those people at Corinth, and some of them were Crispus, maybe Sosthenes. You know, maybe some of them were, but I think what Paul's doing there is saying, look, in your very church, I see the same pattern of the gospel that I've seen before. And I see the same. And, and of course, we see the same pattern of the gospel that very, very few amongst the high and mighty are Christian or actually Christian or act like Christians. Yeah. Okay, we've got a bit of time. Should we jump into the text? Let's do it. Uh, the introduction to the text is, in some ways, I don't want to overstate this, but it's in some ways really a statement of the entire thesis and content of the rest of the epistle. We'll see that with some of the key phrases that Paul chooses to use. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God, which I think actually maybe the opening salvo, because again, we're going to be dealing with sectarianism here in short order. I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, etc. It's the church of God. I also love the fact, tangentially, that Paul doesn't say, look, you're my church, I founded you, so listen up. He doesn't think of it as his church. And that's something I think we pastors need to be really conscious of, that we serve the church of God. The church belongs not to any man, but to God. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, um, made holy in Christ Jesus, hagiosmenoi, so hagia for holy, in Christ Jesus, called to be holy or called holy, maybe just even more in a wooden translation, hagiois, holy ones or saints. together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so a couple more things to point out here. Um, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called holy ones, saints. You may have a hint there of the what we what we'll later call the forensic gospel that they're called to be holy ones. Either way, I think you do. You have the church of God. You have sanctified in Christ Jesus, made holy in Christ Jesus, and called holy ones, called to be saints. And think of the problems in Corinth, and still Paul calls them holy and sanctified in Christ. It's really a remarkable thing, but it is a a preaching of the gospel from the outset. And then, of course, very important, something I've really only recently become aware of, is the importance of this in Paul's theology. With all those who in every place, here's the key, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you remember this from Romans 10, just our reading this past Sunday, um, where uh, in Romans 10, 13, he uses this saying, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's quoting there from Joel chapter 2. So this is a major point in Paul's gospel that, look, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. 
So with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, so everyone who calls upon the name, he's their Lord. He's also our Lord, obviously. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So again, that idea of the church of God, the church of our our Father, which is a stunning statement because, again, without Christ and without Christ's teaching, we would never think of God as our Father, we as his sons. Um, baptismal language undergirding all of this or baptismal conceptualization. God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the Holy Spirit is missing, but then again, he's not. He's the one penning and inspiring the words and directing our attention to Christ and to our Father. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Again, probably allusions to um, what the Corinthians as a culture and as a people admire. Speech, that rhetoric we talked about, and knowledge, that idea of philosophy, which what is knowledge and what is true knowledge and all of that will be addressed in short order. But he shows them that they are in every way enriched in Christ Jesus in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony, the witness concerning Christ or the testimony about Christ It can be the witness of Christ if you wanted to, the grammar permits Christ himself doing the witnessing, but I kind of think that's a stretch. It's possible, though. The witness concerning Christ was confirmed among you. And so the confirmation here is is the are the spiritual gifts, like following Acts, uh, early chapters of Acts. Testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. You believed and you received the charismata, the spiritual gift, as it's um, translated. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Again, that's this charismati gift. As you wait for the apocalypse, apocalypse in the revealing or the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a lot packed in here. Obviously, their salvation is not of themselves. It's of God, and it comes to them through the witness concerning Christ, confirmed in them by the Spirit giving his gifts, by the charismati. And they are waiting then for the revelation or the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end? All of this is plural, by the way. Who will sustain you, plural, to the end? So he's the one who sustains, not us, not our powers or abilities. Again, there's a lot of theology packed in here in a very simple way. Uh, Guiltless or uh, anekletos, unaccused, unaccused in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is beautiful. So the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, referring to his coming, that's synonymous with the apocalypsis, the revelation of Christ. And that's what they're waiting for. Now, Paul doesn't say you're waiting for a whole bunch of events before that happens. You're, you know, you're waiting for John to write Revelation so you can understand where you are in the end times chronology and interpret it all. And then after various signs, then Christ will come. Just look at the simplicity. Paul expects Christ to come. That's what everyone's waiting for. And I think that's really worthwhile to refresh ourselves in. That's what our hope is too. You know, every, every day concretely is lived. That's why we make the sign of the cross every morning and every evening, because every day is lived as if it's either our last or Christ is coming. Our last or everyone's last. (laughs) And that reframes your day in a way. um, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom and teach us uh, probably nothing better than um, the remembrance that we are perishing. And this day may be our last to help guide us in in terms of Christian priority. If this were your last day, how would you live it, right? How would you go about the tasks that God has given you to do as a a good and faithful servant? So a good reminder here against our flesh. God is faithful. I love the gospel elements all threaded throughout this, that God is faithful. So it's not predicated upon our faithfulness or lack thereof, but God is faithful, by whom we were called 
into the koinonion, which of course fellowship's fine, but it's more than that. It's the communion of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And by 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to see that that koinonia, that communion is partaking of the body and blood of Christ, thus becoming his body. So I would say into the holy communion of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I think that this is a Eucharistic, a Lord's Supper reference. No doubt about it. That's the essence of Christian fellowship. Okay. What do you think? That's the introduction proper. Obviously, I try not to touch on everything because I think it's obnoxious. Um, but is there anything that I left out that you find meaningful or uh, apropos? I think, like you said, with all of the challenges and problems they have, you still, you know, say they're sanctified, they're holy. I mean, this, this is wonderful. Yeah, especially, and I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, but as we read the text, we're going to recognize that this is a church that in some ways is deeply divided. It's got sectarianism going on. There's false doctrines, people who are re- denying their, I mean, fundamental things like the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the body. There's, there's a, gross sexual immorality happening, a lack of church discipline in the name of the gospel. So there's a misunderstanding about what the gospel is and what the Christian life is. I mean, this is a congregation that you look at and you go, there's so many problems here. I mean, no one would want to get called out of seminary to Corinth. (laughs) They're going to, they're going to send an experienced pastor with real thick skin there. Right. But look how wonderfully uh, Paul, Paul speaks to that. And I think it's it's a great thing. That's a great thing for us to refresh too. That and this is, I mean, again, let's not let's not lose sight of the fact that this is at this point in time basically a congregation. So sometimes if you look around the congregation, you go, "That's a that's a disastrous congregation. It's a wreck of a congregation." Well, maybe, but judge it relative to Corinth. And if Corinth was established by St. Paul and the pastors there were no doubt put in place by St. Paul himself, we can't really lay the blame on them. (laughs) We just need to recognize the realities of proclaiming the gospel and God establishing his church literally in Satan's living room. With all of our flesh still happy to be in Satan's living room and happy to act up whenever. And so the church is there and will stand no matter what. And God declares us to be saints and daily and richly forgives our sins and overlooks the problems individually and corporately of a given church. All right. Anything else you want to touch on? The, the church lost all the knowledge, it seems like. We have the early church father. We didn't have this, but also the early church fathers, first three centuries, writing this over again, and it seemed to be lost during the Reformation. You point out, like here, it says, if um, you, would, you will be sustained uh, you to the end, God will take care of your faith. Mm-hmm. You are called. That, mm-hmm. We don't find that in the early church prior to. Outside of John Hess, who they burned, mm, mm, yeah. you're finding none of this. None of this is being taught in the church. At the beginning of the medieval church. Yes. So you you start laying blame a little bit later down the line for that atrophy and that change. And most of it should be laid at the feet of the so-called papacy and the invention of the papacy. It really cannot be overstated how much that changes the shape. So the origin of that, most people would date to like the 6th century. So the 6th century is where things really start going off the rails in many of the ways that will be recognized in the Reformation. And a lot of that traces to the papacy and that whole sort of influence, which is just very much, I mean, the papacy ends up uh, anathematizing Orthodox church fathers who use this and speak of this frequently. I mean, this theology is their theology. Um, I think as early as Clement, uh, which is, he's one of the very earliest bishops of Rome. He's citing this and preaching this faithfully and wonderfully. Um, so where does this rich theology start to get lost? Uh, 
in an overarching arching sense, the papacy and then, yeah, much of the medieval period. But even then, I think we can be anachronistic and, and maybe uh, misrepresentative. It's not as though merely like, um, I think you mentioned Hess, who's the other guy? Um, it's commonly said, oh gosh, it's on the tip of my brain. Who's the other sort of proto-reformer? Uh, Wycliffe, that's the name I'm looking for. Uh, these sort of proto-reformers, and then you get the reformer himself. I think it would be helpful for us to understand that, you know, much as what the Lord said to Paul in regard to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, that, look, there's many who are mine, that it was that way all throughout the medieval period. There are many Christians who didn't lose the gospel. We can't get the idea that, like, Luther discovers the gospel in such a sense that, like, it had really and truly been lost for centuries. That would be a complete misread. Um, there are many who still grasp the gospel, even though the church in the West had largely anathematized it already or lost it already. There are many faithful Christians scattered abroad who keep the simplicity of the gospel. And obviously, when Luther starts preaching, there's a resonance there. In the same way that when Paul starts preaching, there's a resonance there. There are, there are faithful Jewish people in the first century who are waiting for the Messiah and when they start, when Paul starts connecting the dots that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, they say yes. And that's true for Luther too. When he starts connecting the dots and saying, this is where the papacies led us astray. This is what the scriptures say. There are plenty of people who say yes. Um, Duncan, did you still have a comment or? Just, uh, I love the word guilt. We talked about saints and sacrifice, sanctifying. In case you were. Yeah, yeah. You you uh, were wondering. It also means you just yeah yeah it all out exactly place. exactly. And I meant to riff on that just a little bit because it's so wonderful. This um especially uh, verse eight, guiltless or like more more tightly unaccused in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Christ comes in judgment, we will be able to stand before Him because we're cleansed by his blood because our the one who is our judge is our savior it's actually not the first time you've stood before christ you've stood before him every lord's day where two or three are gathered in his name when you approach the lord's supper you approach as if going to the judgment and there he says for you for the forgiveness of your sins we approach the lord's supper as if going to the judgment so that when we go to the judgment it's as if going to the lord's supper so when the lord appears it should be like Thank God. I'm relieved. I'm not fearful. I'm not terrified. And not only are we found, um, I mean, guiltless is great. I don't mean to take anything away from it, but just not even accused. Not as though you've been accused, but then found guiltless, just unaccused. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So a beautiful, beautiful gospel word there. Thank you for that. Was there another hand that I see? Yeah, please. Oh, I'm just thinking. I mean, it's tempting for us to look and say, well, why couldn't they figure it out? You know? Read the New Testament, right? But what did they have to read? What did they, I mean, did they have anything to read? Mm -mm. I mean, so it was all through hearing, right? And through all preaching, mm -hmm. and this letter would have been really important, right? Yeah, I mean, I we don't know. I, to my knowledge, we don't have any of the details, right? But even a synagogue in a prominent city like Corinth wouldn't have a full text of the Old Testament. Wouldn't have all those scrolls. Probably have just a few scrolls. Yeah, individuals, unless they were of extreme wealth and that was of interest to them, wouldn't have scrolls. Um, yeah, so nobody's got a personal Bible at this time. It's what you're hearing. Uh, it's yeah, it's what's being preached to you in the synagogues. What you're hearing, what what Paul and the other apostles are preaching and saying. Mm -hmm. You know, initially I was just thinking of the Reformation and how Luther translating into German mm -hmm. and making it accessible. But yeah. Before that, not many people having access to. Yeah, there's a lot of that, a lot of that. I mean, but God, God still keeps his saints, you know, despite that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't mean to be too honorary about it. I think it's obviously a blessing. We all have access to the word of God. I don't mean to undercut that in any way. Everybody having the word of God sure hasn't further unified us. 
So even that's not like some silver bullet. It's still a recognition that God has to be doing the doing, that God has to be creating the faith and uniting his people. Even even a proliferation of Bibles can't guarantee that. All right, well, we're at 7.30, so that's great. Next week, we'll jump into his first appeal and the first problem addressed against this concept of sectarianism. And that will be done in fairly short order because Paul just basically rebukes it. And then on into the maybe maybe one of the most deep and fascinating sections for us um, as, as Christians with some maturity um, where we're going to talk about uh, the true wisdom and true power of God in Christ and him crucified. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.